Well, I'm going to continue this morning in the series I began recently, a series that I'm calling The Issues of Life. And through this series, I've tried to do my best to help the body of Christ see her spiritual role in kind of ordinary ways, such as voting. I've been a big proponent in the last couple of messages to propagate the message how important our vote is in this upcoming election. Many believers are under the delusion that whatever happens, it's God's will. It's referred to as the doctrine of sovereignty. Friends, that is about as crazy as a square tire. Whatever happens is not always God's will. People can spiritualize things to, I was peeling potatoes and cutting my finger. Well, that must be God's will. They can say, you know, I was driving to work and got a flat tire. That must be God's will. You know, we can spiritualize things. And the truth of the matter is, it's not always God's will. Now, he can work and he can continue to work in those situations. We do understand the scripture that all things work together. That doesn't mean that God causes these things to happen or that he even wants these things to happen. But it's kind of like us as parents. Our kids throw curveballs at us as they're growing and they end up with boo-boos that we weren't planning for. And so we have to address them as those uh, situations come up. And I think that's really what happens with a father, except one thing that he can do is he can see everything in advance where we cannot always see the things in advance. Does God love the people of North Korea as much as he loves the people of the United States of America? It's a bizarre question, and the answer is, is obviously yes. He loves North Koreans as much as he loves the people of the United States. However, North Korea is under a government that does not allow its citizens to watch television, does not allow its citizens to listen to music, does not allow its citizens to practice Christianity, does not allow its citizens to even talk about the government. It does not allow its citizens to make international phone calls or to travel abroad. That country does not allow its citizens to actually own an automobile. And it does not allow its citizens to use the internet. They do not have the internet. It is for government only. Now that's a stark contrast between all the liberties we have and the liberties that they do not have. So looking at it from the outside, one could say that God's favor is on one country over another, and that is simply not true. This reinforces the point I just made just a moment ago that everything that happens is not the sovereign will of God, yet he still works in the midst of all those things. What's my point? My point is this, Adam was given dominion and authority by God. I don't think anybody will argue with that. He said, take dominion, have authority. But Adam lost his dominion and his authority of all places in front of a tree. It would be several thousand years later, but Jesus would come and of all places on a tree would give back to his creation dominion and authority. On Tuesday, November 3rd, we are going to stand in front of, not a tree, but we're going to stand in front of a voting booth. And it's there that we exercise dominion. 
and we exercise our authority, our God-given authority, our God-given dominion. There will be two trees present on that ballot. These trees will come in the form of presidential candidates. One we believe will cause our nation to prosper, rejoice, if you will, and the other may cause this nation to go into deep mourning. Friends, let me tell you something. I've said it before. I want to say it again. God is not the one who will be picking the next president of the United States. The people will be picking the next president of the United States. There's so many people out there that don't vote because they just say, well, whatever happens, it was God's will anyway. So why would we want to change anything? God bless people that feel that way and think that way, but the truth of the matter is they've not studied the word because we see examples all throughout the word that God is a God of order. God is a God of putting people in place. In fact, in, I believe it's the book of Acts chapter four, when the apostles were waiting on people, doing the menial task of feeding them and socializing with them, Peter said, we've got a calling on our lives to preach the gospel. So he said, let's find seven men full of the Holy Ghost and power and wisdom. Now that's an interesting criteria that you have to meet in order to wait on tables. But see, waiting on tables is much larger than just serving someone a dish. When I go to the restaurant, it's much larger than going there and just getting a bite to eat. I'm in ministry mode all the time, everywhere I go. So today I'm going to be ministering through a message I'm calling Honor the One. And what I want us to see through the message today is that honor is caught, honor is taught, and honor is fought for. Honor begins in the heart, the heart of a child. In fact, we learn very early in life that some things, probably most things, are taught. There are other things that cannot really be taught. They must be caught. There's kind of a spirit of, of catching it. You can't learn how to swim from the living room. It's not just about teaching. It's more caught. You learn how it's done. And there are certain things, friends, that are to be fought for. We have morphed into a society that lacks honor. And to say that this is not true, it would be as clumsy as trying to sew a button on a garment while wearing boxing gloves. There are believers that don't like a statement like that. They say to me, Mark, you're not being positive enough. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. You're looking at one of the most positive people you are ever going to meet in your entire life. I'm real with people. See, the Bible says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What does grace do? Sets us free. Sets us free from religion. Sets us free from our sins. And the Bible says the same thing about truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you or make you free. That's why grace and truth both came through Jesus Christ. If you reject the evidence that we have morphed into society that lacks honor, then I have a message for you. You have spent too much time in the playpen and not enough time in the bullpen. You have spent too much time in the penthouse and not enough time in the doghouse. You have spent too much time with the elite and not enough time on the street. You see, I don't just pastor a church. I live out in that world out there. I work a job. I work with people that don't know Jesus yet. 
And so I pay attention and I'm praying for people, all of them that they might come to the knowledge of the Lord. So I see what's going on. And sometimes even as ministers, we can shelter ourselves away so deeply that we lose reality. We lose touch with what's going on in our world. We lose touch with what's going on in the street. The honor that this nation once held for God and once held for the Bible is vanishing at the speed of cotton candy when it touches the tongue. School teachers are dishonored. The men and women that wear blue are dishonored. Our soldiers are dishonored. Our flag is dishonored. Our national anthem is dishonored. The sanctity of life is dishonored. The marriage bed is dishonored. Little children are dishonored by their parents. They grow up to be parents who dishonor their children. And then they grow up to be parents who dishonor their children. And the greatest dishonor I believe that a parent can do toward their children is not to teach them about the things of God. You can take them on vacation. You can take them all over the world. You can pay for a Harvard education. But if you have not instructed your children in the ways of the Lord and talked about the goodness of God, like we sang about earlier this morning, you have done your children an absolute disservice. You have dishonored them. And so this is a cycle that has to be broken. Our president and first lady are criticized, marginalized, and ostracized continuously. Our First Lady is one of the most beautiful women that has ever graced the White House. She's one of the smartest that's ever been in there. She's one of the most gracious women that have ever been in that White House. I mean, look at that face. Melania Trump is fluent in five languages. Not dabbles in five languages, fluent in five languages. She's a businesswoman. She is a former supermodel. But she is a tender heart. And if you ever watch the way she interacts with children, interacts in the ministries that she's called to through the presidential office, you can see her heart shining through. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't you find it a little strange? And don't you find it a little odd? Don't you find it a little peculiar? Don't you find it a little weird? Don't you find it out of the ordinary that our First Lady has not adorned the cover of a single U.S. magazine in the four years that they have spent in the White House. Friends, let me tell you something. That is dishonor. You know what that would be like? That would be like me or you coming up with a multi-million dollar idea for the company you work for. And that company runs with that idea and they begin to prosper. They begin to make tons of money off of your idea, yet they give you no credit. They give you no thank yous. They give you no recognition whatsoever. That's what has happened here. Melania's credentials are pristine. You see, what would happen is her face on a magazine would help the president's cause. That's the underlying issue. And so to not recognize her, not to recognize an employee that's come up with a brilliant idea to make your company a lot of money, in doing so, that company would have dishonored the one that has added to their success and their sustainability. The coronavirus has been blamed on our president. The rioting and burning in our streets 
is blamed on our president. Friends, this is the failure of leadership, but it's not on a presidential level. This is the failure of leadership on a mayoral, on a congressional, on a government level, but not presidential failure. Our president has told the governors on many occasions, all you've got to do is call me. You just call me. You pick up your phone and call me. You just say the word and I'll send in the troops and we'll end this issue in a day. But yet many refuse to honor the one that could bring rest in short order. Dishonor is not overcome with more dishonor any more than you can make something less salty by adding more salt. Only God's love can light the way out of such darkness. Only God's love can produce honor. I'm talking about the love and the honor that needs to be introduced in the cradle. The cradle of a child. That's where it starts. You see, children are like little tender shoots. As they're growing, they can be shaped to grow in any direction you want to. But the word of God brings correction. It brings growth. It helps them to grow and appreciate the things of God. I spent yesterday afternoon at my grandson's birthday party. He turned 14. And that young kid has a love for animals like no other kid I've ever seen. He loves to watch videos of animals. He loves to pick up animals. He has a love for animals. Well, friends, imagine all the animals would have been hid from him from the day one. See, they've always had animals at their house. They've got chickens. They've got ducks. They've got dogs. They've had animals. So he's developed this love for animals because he's been around animals. You love, you come to love and appreciate those things that you get around. You know, one of the most helpful things for me when I was working the streets in evangelism years ago to fall in love with people that don't know God is to go meet them on their level. I mean, you go down into the gutters and knock on doors and you walk up in rough neighborhoods. I would remember times I would see three or four guys sitting on a porch and I would think, man, I don't want to walk up there and talk to these guys. Man, I'd just turn the corner and start walking up that little sidewalk and I would have them sometimes check me and say, hey, Stop. You weren't welcome to come up here. And I would just stand there and just say, friends, all I came by was to tell you about the love of God. And I would let the Holy Spirit do it from there. I would just fall in love with people because I knew they needed the heart of God. Because I was there. I was on their level trying to reach them. And sometimes it can be done different ways. It can be just done in prayer. Whether you walk up and down the street or not, that's up to you. Praying for people will cause you to love them. Praying for people will cause you to take on their burdens and to just help carry their load. The Bible tells us to do those kind of things. So dishonor is not overcome by adding more dishonor. It's overcome by God's love and God's light. I'm talking about the love and the light and the truth and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that is sown into the heart of a child in a cradle. It is not too early to start singing over that child. Start singing over them. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, we find these words. I love this scripture here. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such 
things. I want you to remember that scripture right there as you make your way to the polling booth on Tuesday, November 3rd. And I want to encourage you to cast your vote and cast your net far and wide that it might catch in at men and women that will uphold our constitution, that will uphold our Christian values, that will uphold all the things that we believe this country is made of because of God. We put God in our hearts. We put God in our homes. Let me ask this question to you. Where does all this dishonor come from? Now, if I just ended the message right there and gave you all an essay assignment to go home and just write, where does all this dishonor come from? I would love to read your reports next week because it would just be filled with things and they'd all be so different. I don't think there's one answer to this, but I can tell you this, when honor is instilled into the heart of a child, then honor is something that will happen instinctively. Likewise, if dishonor is sown into the heart of a child, it will happen instinctively too. We don't want to sow in dishonor. If honor is not present in an adult person, then it's the evidence that it was never introduced as a child. As that child was beginning to form, if you meet a person today, an adult person who is dishonorable, then honor was not shown to that child in a way that they really got a hold of it and it took root in their heart. You don't lose your honor any more than you lose your salvation. So we don't have honor one moment and then dishonor the next. Oh, honor is beautiful to behold. It's one of the most precious things. I've watched Valerie over these last two or three days honor her mother at our home. Honor her and wait on her and be kind to her and be generous to her. It's beautiful just to sit back in the shadows and watch all this honor take place. You know, I never tire of watching our military, our servicemen honor a fallen soldier. I never tire of watching them at the cemetery as they do their salutes and they do the taps. But the thing that gets me all the time is when they fold that flag. There's something that's so breathtaking about watching them fold that flag because they honor that. They honor the body as it comes out of the hearse. They honor that soldier. They honor our flag they hold it close to their chest. They hand it back and forth as they have folded that up. And then they salute it and they take it to the widow and they present it. Honor. It's so beautiful to see. It makes me proud and it makes my heart proud to be an American when I see that. You ask any soldier and he will tell you that honor is Caught, taught, and fought for. Our soldiers honor the one and only nation that has known freedom like no other nation. Our president loves the military. In fact, he has invested $2 trillion into our military to fortify it. At every State of the Union address, our president honors the great men and women of our armed services. Through the strength of our military, I think we're we're better protected, I do. And God's okay with that. We don't just let people come in and take our country and abuse our country. Friends, until Jesus comes again, he himself said that there would be wars and there will be rumors of wars. 
In the Old Testament, we meet a man. His name is Saul. He is the first king of Israel. Saul was like the skipper from Gilligan's Island, brave and sure, yet stranded in jealousy. Absolutely stranded in jealousy. A giant stood in Saul's way. A champion, you remember him? Goliath. But God raised up a shepherd boy, a shepherd boy named David. David, a young man that came from the business world of tending sheep, a man that would stand as he would say with his own words in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, and he would strike down the tyrant referred to as the uncircumcised Philistine. Now, when Saul and David first met, Saul loved David. He loved his heart playing. He loved everything about David. One of the things that Saul loved about David is David made Saul successful. In fact, David was so successful in everything that Saul assigned him to do that Saul took note of that. And he began to promote David in his army. He began to move up in the ranks. And when the battles that they were fighting stilled, when the war quit raging, Saul, along with David and his troops, made their way back to Washington. I meant uh, they made their way back to Jerusalem. <laughs> I would just see if you're paying attention. And upon entrance into Jerusalem, they were met with, look at this, singing and dancing and joyful songs. That's the way they were welcomed back in. Does this sound a little bit familiar? It does. You see, when World War II ended, our soldiers returned home. And guess what? They were hailed as heroes. A euphoric atmosphere overtook the nations and celebrations were and honors were held all over the country. Unfurled American flags that decorated streets and homes and flagpoles and businesses and buildings could be seen all over the country just flapping in the wind. A ticker tape parade celebration captivated the pride and the heart of our nation. We were victorious. We were holding Goliath's head. Now let's fast forward. Let's fast forward a few years and then we run into the Vietnam conflict. When it began, America had raised up a generation between World War II and the Vietnam era that had drank some poison Kool-Aid a generation that had not been taught about the things of God, children that had grown into adults in many ways and had never once heard the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Men and women that had never been taught to think about the things that are true, the things that are noble, the things that are right, the things that are pure, the things that are lovely, the things that are admirable, the things that are excellent, and even the things that are praiseworthy. There was a man named Stephen Walk. He was a 21-year-old man, and he arrived in the infantry uh, in the Army's 1st Cavalry Division in Cameron Bay, Vietnam. The year was 1969. It was early January. He went there to fight in an increasingly an unpopular and unwinnable war. And by June of that year, Wauk had been wounded twice. In fact, the second time he got wounded, it was so severe, they had to send him home. He arrived in Boston at the Boston's Chelsea uh, Naval Hospital. And here was the deal. Strapped 
to a gurney on a retrofitted bus en route to the hospital, Stephen Walk and other wounded servicemen, you know what they felt in their heart? They felt excitement. They remember when you come home from war, you're honored. They celebrate your success. They were happy to be back on American soil. And on the trip to the hospital is where they encountered their first act of hostility as a veteran. Looking out the window and seeing civilians stop to watch them in that little convoy that they were in, in those hospital-bound vehicles, their excitement quickly turned to confusion. And here's what Stephen said. He said, I remember feeling like, what can I do in this moment? What can I possibly do to the onlookers? And he said, the first thing that came to my mind was to just smile and give them a peace sign. He says, as they stared at us, they did the same thing back, minus one finger. Dishonor! Where did that come from? Come on, where would that come from? In one generation, the mid-40s to the mid-60s, where did that happen? You see, sometimes when people don't agree with what's going on, they have this way of expressing dishonor. They have this way of expressing disgust. And it shouldn't be that way. You know, I don't agree with everything that goes on either, but I don't dishonor. I still honor the people, the men, the women in the office. It doesn't matter. We are to be people of honor. It's the same dishonor that we're witnessing today. Police officers that are sworn to protect and serve our communities, yet dishonored at every turn. Oh, they received the peace sign all right, minus one finger. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 through 9, we find this account. It says, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, who's the Philistine? That is Goliath. After he had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now look at the next scripture. Saul was very angry. You see, everything was going fine until you compared yourself to somebody else, until somebody did that. Saul came marching in, feeling good about his victories. And then they heard the song that Saul has killed his thousands. And can you imagine how he would have stuck his chest out saying, yeah, that's me. Straighten his crown a little bit. But when they started talking about David having killed his tens of thousands, the smile was wiped away with an eraser at that moment. And then it says, Saul was very angry. He didn't come into town angry, but suddenly He's angry. See, things aren't going his way now. So his response is anger. <laughs> Saul was angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands and rightfully so, friends. 
he thought, but with me only thousands, what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Do you know what that looks like to keep a close eye? Oh, it's like mothers, man. You can have five kids, man, and that mom knows exactly where every one of those kids are because she's keeping a close eye. You ever watch a mother, man? I tell you what, she got three or four kids running around, especially in a place that might not be too safe, man. She's like radar. She knows exactly what they're doing. And that's exactly what Saul was doing. He had an eye on David. He was watching his every move. Friends, listen, if you're going to find freedom, you have to understand that things don't always go our way and it's okay. Okay, we pray about it. We bless those that curse us. We pray for those who despitefully use us. That's our response. That's our response. And then over the years, Saul attempted to kill David on many occasions. You see, now he's not just angry. He's taken it to an all new level. Now he's wanting to be a murderer. And he tried, I mean, to kill David. I mean, he threw javelins at him and everything. All of a sudden, David would be sitting there by a tree, not even see Saul. And, you know, a javelin would be sticking next to his head. Saul tried to kill David on several occasions. But God, I love this, but God protected David. Why? Because of covenant and because of promise. You get that in your heart this morning, that God protects us. Why? Because of covenant and promise. He cannot lie. He protects us because of covenant and promise. David, on the other hand, had just as much opportunity, maybe even more, to take out Saul. But you know what? He refused to touch the Lord's anointed. He refused. He said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Friends, let me tell you something. I have learned over these last four years that it's impossible to drain a swamp <laughs> without contending with alligators. Alligators that instinctively take their prey into a death roll. I'm talking about the death roll of even character assassination. Creatures that no longer have any honor for the flesh and blood that occupies the highest office in the land. Creatures that spend little to no time thinking about that which is true, that which is noble, that which is pure, that which is lovely, that which is praiseworthy. Spend no time because if you spend time thinking about these things, how can I be true? How can I be noble? How can I be lovely? If you'll meditate on those things, then you know what? That's exactly what your response will be. As I've said before, you want to find out what's in a man's heart, you just cut him one time, you'll find out what's in his heart. And if you've been meditating on that which is lovely, that which is true, that which is pure, that which is praiseworthy, that which is excellent, then I'm telling you that's exactly what will come out of your heart. Amen. Honor is caught, honor is taught, and honor is fought for. And David understood honor because David understood the heart of God. Here's another thing that was good for David. David had a teachable heart. Friends, have a teachable heart. That's why when the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart, that's Psalm 37, 4. It literally means when he says he will give you the desires of your heart, it's talking about have a pliable heart, a heart that you can mold and shape. That's a teachable heart. It's like a lump of clay, you know, while it's moist and while it's got water content in it, you can squeeze it and you can shape it into a, a vase or something very, very beautiful. But when it hardens, you can't do anything with it. 
And so when the Bible says that we are to have pliable hearts, and what makes our hearts pliable? It's being in the Word. It's looking at that which is true. That's Jesus. Looking at that which is lovely. That's Christ. Looking at that which is praiseworthy. That's Christ. It's looking unto Christ. That he softens our heart. He does something to our heart to make it beautiful like his. David had a teachable heart. And he knew how to fight too. He knew how to fight against lions. He knew how to fight against bears. And he knew how to fight against giants. All football teams, you see that? He knew how to fight against all of that stuff. He did. There's no question. When I read the Psalms, and I read about David, there is no question in my heart that David was full of courage. There's no question in my heart that David was full of ability. And there is no question in my heart that David was full of emotions. He was passionate as he wrote the Psalms. You ever read these Psalms and just meditate and go, wow, that came out of a real relationship with God, a relationship that is not even the quality of a relationship that you and I have because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Anybody from the Old Covenant, anybody under the Old Testament would have traded gladly with us today to have what we have. Yet sometimes we don't even appreciate it. So David was full of courage. David was full of ability. David was full of emotions. But David did not allow his emotions to make his decisions. Listen, friend. You know what emotions would have said? Emotions would have said, run from Goliath. But what did David do? He ran to Goliath. You know what emotions would have said? Just one little lamb. The lion's got to eat too. That's what your emotions would have said when you're dealing with the emotion of fear. I mean, come here, put yourself in the pasture one time. Go ahead. You see yourself out there, shepherd, little shepherd's hook and everything. You see yourself out there? You got a hundred sheep, okay? Now a lion comes rolling in and snatches one of the lambs and runs off with it. What do you do? You know what David did? He ran after the lion. And he didn't use his slingshot. The Bible says he grabbed him by the mane and he gave him a death blow with his fist. You've got to have something supernatural going to be able to do something like that. Boom! You know what? When he was running after that lion, he knew who he belonged to. He knew the God of Israel. He knew the God of this army. And he said, man, no problem. When the bear came, did the same exact thing, friends. Emotions will just simply say, no, run from, not run to. Your emotions may be saying, I don't always agree with my president's tweets. Your emotions may be saying, I don't like some of the decisions he makes. I've got a word for you, friends. Visualize your emotions as cotton candy touching your tongue. Set your emotions to the side and cast your vote for righteousness. Cast your vote for righteousness. In spite of David's courage and his ability to take out Saul, David, you know what he did? He chose to run from Saul. He chose to hide from Saul most of his life there. You know why? Because David knew, if I have to ever encounter Saul, I'm going to have to take him out. And there are times, friends, that we need to learn how to pick our battles, right? And there are times where I find myself in situations where people want to reel me into a situation and I have to go, Holy Spirit, what about this? 
because the enemy is just setting the trap for you, friends. And it may look like weakness to bow out. Just say, no, I'd rather not go there. But I'm telling you, that's an amazing strength. And that's what David had in his heart. This amazing strength working that he would run from Saul, hide from Saul. Amazing. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 13, we see an amazing story. It says this, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Isn't that amazing? Saul's got 3,000 men. You think that's a little overkill? David's got a handful of buddies. <laughs> He's got 3,000 men. You know why? Because he knows what David's made out of. And the only chance we've got, because he's got a God that's the God of the armies, the God of Israel, the only way this is going to be possible, 3,000 men. Can you imagine that? David just got a couple of buddies with him. It says this, it said, He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Friends, literally what that means is Saul went in to take a nap. Sounds like he's going to the bathroom. It's not about going to the bathroom. Saul went into this cave to take a nap, which was very common. I mean, you're talking about 110 degree weather, blistering hot. It's very comforting when you're tired to go into a cave, a nice cool cave. It's dark. Can you see that? That's all he's doing. He's going into this cave just to take a little night night, a little nap. He just happens to pick the cave that David's in. Now, what's the chances of that? I mean, you've got caves all over the place. He just happens to pick the cave that David and his merry men are hiding in. And it says this, David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Here's Saul. He's laying down. He's fast asleep. And David crawls up, takes out his knife, and cuts off a piece of his robe to say, hey, <laughs> there's no way I could have this unless I was up close to you. So David cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. He has the opportunity to take Saul out right there. The 3,000 men are still outside. They won't even hear anything. Is that David's heart? No. And it shouldn't be our heart either that we want to rejoice over our enemies being taken out. No, that's not our heart. Our heart is that our enemies would be converted and see the goodness of God in the land of the living. So David cuts off a piece of his robe. Then it continues. It says, afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. Isn't that amazing? What a heart. What a heart. You've got Osama bin Laden right in your sights. And David says, no. He's my Lord, not my Lord in terms of Christ, but he's my master. 
This guy is my master, whether I like him or not. He's my master. And David said, no, we're not going to do that. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. In other words, when Saul woke up, he went back out totally unaware that anything had happened in this cave. This is how sneaky they were. Quiet. Come, came in like a stealth bomber. Didn't even know it was there. And all of a sudden, they could have taken him right out. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. Now, see, a lot of us would just go, Whew, that was close. I'd just stay in the cave and let them go on their way and then I'll go a different direction. Look at the heart of David here, man. It says, David came out of the cave and he called out to Saul and he still calls him, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Look what he says now. He says, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? Does this sound like the media today? Telling the people lies to create a false narrative? David never once said he was going to hurt Saul. Yet all this chatter was going on behind the scene, funneling into Saul's face, funneling into Saul's heart, funneling into Saul's ears that David says he's going to kill you. Well, he just had opportunity and didn't do it. Why? Because he had a heart after the heart of God. Now you put him in the right situation like a Goliath where you listen, there's a different situation. That's why we always need to listen to the Lord. That's why I said some things are taught, some things are caught, but some things are fought for. You can have anything I own. You won't get much fight out of me. You mess with my wife, you'll find a fighter in me. And I hope every man would feel the same way about that. There's no way I would just stand and let somebody take advantage of my wife, hurt her in any way. You'd find a, a boxer on the inside of me. Otherwise, I can reason with you, friend. You need that, there you go, take it. He said, this day... You have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. This is what David says to Saul. He said, can't you see, man, that the Lord delivered you right into my hands into the cave? Now look at the next scriptures. It says, some urge me to kill you. In other words, my own men said, kill him. Some urge me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. Now David reveals the piece of the robe that he's cut off. And I imagine when he showed Saul that, Saul looked at it and thought, man, that looks like my robe. And he started looking down on his robe and he saw that where that piece fit together like a puzzle and thought, man, you had to be close to me to have something like that. And you had a knife when you were close to me, but yet you didn't kill me. What a heart. David said, I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. 
He said, see that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. He went on to say, I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. What was David trying to convey in those words? What was his heart really trying to say? He was saying, listen, honor the one in authority. Friends, we are becoming so established in grace that when things don't go our way, we don't just fall apart. We don't lose our honor. We see a New Testament example of honor that, you know what, just absolutely astonished Jesus. Now, can you imagine the Son of God being amazed, so astonished? What is he going to see? Something that just astonished Christ. We see it in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10, and then verse 13. It says it this way. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, we say Capernaum. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, look at these words, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. That should be our hearts as we go, that we can have this expectation. Let it be done just exactly as you believed it would, including the election that's coming up. Go, go vote, go propagate this message of God's goodness and, and believe with all of your heart that it will be done just exactly as you believed it would be. I'm passionate about this, friends. And the Bible says, and his servant was healed at that moment, the moment he believed. Isn't that beautiful? That moment, not 24 hours later, that moment. We have to learn to capture the moment. Would you like to know what that Roman centurion soldier was doing? I think it's pretty obvious. He was honoring the one that had a reputation for healing. He was honoring the one that had a reputation for delivering. He was honoring the one that had a reputation for setting people free. Honoring the one who had a reputation for casting out devils. Honoring the one who had the reputation of raising the dead. He was honoring the one that had all this ability, all this goodness on the inside of him. Now, let me ask you a question. Did everyone approve of everything that Jesus was doing? <laughs> no, that's right. Of course not. They did not. Jesus was constantly criticized, constantly marginalized, and constantly ostracized. Does this sound familiar, friends? 
criticized all the time, marginalized, never getting credit for what you've done, ostracized at all times. Sound a little familiar, it does to me. The religious leaders were always picking on him. You ever have a scab and you just want to keep picking it? Maybe it's a boy thing. I don't know. If I get a scab, I got to keep picking at it. I don't know why I want to do that. I want to pick at it, pick at it until it's bleeding. Then you can let it scab back over and you start picking at it again. There's just something about it. And the religious leaders were always picking on Jesus, always trying to pick fights, always trying to pick a scab on Jesus. The Pharisees ripped Jesus' words in two at every single one of his State of the Union addresses. They snapped at Jesus like alligators and they did not want to honor the one that could light their way out of darkness. Boy, is that a mouthful. Let me ask you a question. How does one define honor? Defining honor is like defining a piece of cake. Words are not enough. Honor has a flavor to it. Honor is known by its actions. You see, honor manifests itself as a code of conduct, and it has various elements such as valor and loyalty and honesty and compassion. Honor has virtuous conduct that exhibits integrity and respect and fidelity. That's what honor looks like. Honor is demonstrated by treating people with loving kindness. It's honorable when we go beyond what is expected of us. And when we constantly display Christ-like character, that's honorable. Even in the midst of persecution. Friends, I'm not telling you something I haven't lived. And I don't believe I'm talking to anybody in here that hasn't lived it either. But I'm telling you, I've been persecuted more than once in life and had to find a way to honor that moment, honor those people in the midst of that persecution. I'm telling you, man, when all my emotions were screaming at me, when courage was rising on the inside of me, when the ability to put you in your place was right there on the tip of my tongue, I had to swallow it like cotton candy because my emotions were about to get away with me and I'm about to release something I'm going to regret, friends. Honor is integral. It's kind. It goes beyond what it should do. The Roman centurion didn't need for Jesus to come to his home. You see, friends, he didn't need to see the healing with his natural eyes. Jesus' reputation was sufficient. Isn't that pretty? He didn't need to see anything with his eyes. His reputation was sufficient. If you were to blindfold me and set me in front of a computer... I could easily write for you a multi-page letter full of sweet things, totally blindfolded. My eyes are not a requirement for me to be able to write you a letter. Why? Because from a child, from a teenager, from ninth grade, the year was 1976 when I took my first typing class. That's where I learned where all the keys were at. And guess what I've learned over the years? They haven't moved. They're in the same place. Yeah, we didn't have computers back then, keyboards back then. We had typewriters. You get the keys all hung up if you type too fast. You know what I'm talking about, right? 
I mean, we're much more sophisticated, but the keys, ASDF, JKL, semicolon, they're all in the same place. So I became familiar with them. I became intimate where, where they were at. I have learned that I can trust that the letters do not change locations. And likewise, with my Papa God, I have learned to trust him. I have spent time with him. And over the years, I have learned one thing. If I've learned one thing, this is it. I have learned that my eyes are not a requirement in order to see my daddy and to know his heart. You know, the Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I don't have to see daddy in order to know his heart. It's faith, friends. It's his word. It's the consistency. You're a good, good father is who you are. The Apostle Paul understood honor. His heart was to honor the one that had set him free on the road to Damascus, namely Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who set him free, Bob. He was on his little way. He had an agenda. He was going to go arrest Christians and persecute them. And then a bright light enveloped him and he fell off his high horse. This is the goodness of God. It wasn't Saul's idea. It was father's idea. Mark it in your mind, though. Living a life, a Christian life, living a life of honor does not come without conflict. Remember, many things are taught. Some things are caught and other things are fought for. The Apostle Paul found himself in conflict many times, even sometimes with his own brothers and sisters in Christ, like Peter and like Barnabas. And Paul was certainly in conflict with religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. He was always in conflict with these guys. He spent most of his time in jail writing letters. Thank God. Paul had a problem with the Judaizers, though. Here was his main problem. Their message did not honor the one that shed his blood for humanity, Jesus Christ. And Paul let the Galatians know about it. The Judaizers of Galatians claimed to be Christians, but also insisted that their salvation was held together through the adherence of the Mosaic law. In other words, what they believed was that they were saved through their good works. They were saved through circumcision. They were saved through law keeping. And this was the Apostle Paul's response to them. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Here's what Paul said. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one. Another way to say that, I'm, so, I'm astonished that you're so quickly dishonoring the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, look what he says. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. As we have already said, I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Paul told the Galatians in those scriptures that he feared for them, that somehow he had wasted his efforts on them. 
And you might say, Mark, what's the big deal? And you might say, Paul, what's the big deal? The big deal is that Paul knew that the Judaizers' message was a dead end. There was no way out of dishonor through the Judaizers' message. It was the coronavirus without cure. It was like cotton candy in that it appeared to have substance, but disappeared quickly. Paul knew that their message had no life in it. It had no ability to save a man. It had no ability to change a man. It had no ability to deliver a man. It had no ability to rescue a man. The Judaizers' message was void of the gospel of grace, and it did not honor the one who came to say, peace, be still. My last scripture is found in John chapter 12 and verse 26. Look what Jesus said. <laughs> Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. That was the inspiration for this message, friends. It came right out of John chapter 12. And verse 26, how do we honor Jesus is the question. And I can tell you like the Roman centurion, we honor Jesus by trusting in his goodness. We honor Jesus by trusting in his power, by trusting in his finished work for our salvation. Friends, the wonderful words that reach out to us from this message today are these. Through the cross of Christ, man's dominion and authority were reinstated. One of the greatest weapons we possess is often overlooked. It's not a slingshot and a stone. It's our privilege to vote. God will not be selecting the next president of our country. We will. It is my prayer that the 40 million evangelical Christians that typically do not vote will be empowered to hear the voice of the Spirit, be empowered to hear the voice of the Father and come out and vote for righteousness. Yes. I want to encourage the body of Christ to cast their nets far and wide that we might be fishers of men. I'm talking about men and women who will uphold our constitution and our Christian values. Men and women who will protect the sanctity of the unborn child and the sacredness of marriage. Men and women who will promote the value of the nuclear family. Men and women who will condemn the senseless acts of violence and drama. I'm talking about men and women who will protect our amendments. Men and women who will defend our borders. Men and women who will not regulate by mere emotions, but are moved by the heart of God. I'm talking about men and women who will flow from the posture of whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent, and whatever is praiseworthy. I want you to think about such things on Tuesday, November 3rd. Friends, honor is caught, taught, and fought for. Through the Father's strength, we triumph over the lion, we triumph over the bear, and we triumph over every single giant that gets in the way. <laughs> Through honor and love, 
We light the way out of darkness. My prayer is that we would have a renewed sense of honor for God, honor for our country, our flag, our constitution, our freedom. We'd have honor for one another, our police officers, our president and first lady, our teachers, our soldiers, our Pledge of Allegiance, our children, our parents. But most of all, we would honor Christ and we would honor this gospel of grace. It's the way out of darkness. Friends, the greatest honor belongs to Jesus. We honor the one who said, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. We honor the one that set us free from the tyranny and oppression of the law by trusting in Jesus' goodness and his finished work of salvation. We honor the one who is full of grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Father, for this message today, this message of honor. Help us to sing like the ladies did when they came back from war. Help us to honor and dance and sing and play instruments and honor the people that have went before us, people that have laid down their lives for the freedom of this great country. We thank you, Father, that I'm reminded that when Abraham was having the conversation and said, would you spare these cities, these violent cities, if just 50 were found to be righteous? And God said, yes, I'll do that. How about 40, God? Yes, I'll do that. How about 30? Yes, I'll do that. How about 20? Yes, I'll do that. How about 10? Yes, I'll do that. And Father, I believe if you'd have got down to just one, said, would you do it just for one? You'd have said, absolutely. You see, that's your heart, Daddy. Your heart is to go always after the one, the one that honors you, Daddy. So thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your love, Daddy. Daddy, I pray that you would encourage the body of Christ, that they would go, Daddy, and they would cast their vote for men and women of God that will stand with your heart. Amen.